Okay, so those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve, and uh, I'm married to Tammy, who you've already met, and we kind of help lead this thing masquerading as church. And so um, this morning, uh, and throughout the month of June, we are continuing in our series, The Year of Biblical Literacy, uh, and we're jumping into a section of the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature. And uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Job, uh, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you are thinking, thank goodness the World Cup's starting. Um, and, and so um, at the start, uh, to start with this morning, we are going to be in the book of Job. Uh, now those familiar with this book will know that it's kind of the, the go-to book when it comes to thinking about the subject of suffering. Um, And so we've got this cheery title uh, for this morning's talk. um, But at the same time, it's it's kind of a peculiar book in the Bible. It's uh, it's the oldest book in the New Testament. And um, it starts off the first two chapters with like a a prologue um, and kind of like this narrative section of the book. And then it goes into poetry. It's a very poetic book. Now, as I said, this this book has a lot to do with suffering. Yet at the same time, it isn't that helpful. I've been reading this book all week, and I hate it. Um, but you know, it's it's not that helpful. And 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 you know, often we go to different books of the Bible, don't we, to to find comfort, to find reassurance, to find answers to the big questions of life. Yet the story that we read in Job doesn't quite resolve the issues that it raises. Uh, and, and, And if you finish reading the book of Job in our year of biblical literacy, you will know this, that it doesn't really give any answers. There's no resolution to the kind of questions the book of Job produces. Um, uh, This one professor and philosopher, he said this about the book of Job. He said, Job is a mystery. The rationalist in us is repelled uh, by Job as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled. But something deeper in us is deeply satisfied by Job and nourished. When we read Job, we're like a little child eating spinach. Open your mouth and close your eyes. Job, like spinach, is not sweet tasting, but it puts iron in your blood. And so the book of Job is is probably one of the most contested and grappled with books of the Bible. And it might not satisfy the kind of rationalist, I need to know an answer kind of mentality. Yet at the same time, it satisfies... Uh, something in us that goes beyond the rational answer. It goes beyond us needing to know all the answers. And so as we open up in chapter one, this prologue, it kind of sets the scene for what's about to happen in this slightly crazy book of the Bible. Um, So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn uh, to Job chapter one. Uh, If you open your Bible in the middle, you could probably land there, okay? So... Um, It's roughly right in the middle. And we're just going to, we're going to walk through the first chapter together this morning. So it says this, it says, In the land of us there there lived a man whose name was Job. 
This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East. And so what do we know about Job? Apart from having a a weird name, uh, Job wasn't an Israelite. Uh, He comes from the land of Uz, which um, is very hard to place and define where that might be. Um, uh, But he was a man who feared God, who who shunned evil, who turned his back on evil. And we see Job had landed himself with a blessed life. His household was fruitful, and he was considered the greatest amongst men. Job was living the good life. He had a good life. He had a good existence. And suddenly, the narrative of chapter 1, it kind of changes. It tells us a little bit about his children, how they like to drink wine um, and have a good time. Um, But then the scene changes, and we enter into the heavenly throne room of God. God is on his throne, and his subjects are coming to him, and reporting on how things are going on earth under God's authority. And so it says this in in verse 6. It says, One day the angels came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Some of you in Bibles might say, Hey, Satan, or the Satan, or the accuser. But Satan enters in to the throne room of God. Now, there are lots of debate amongst Old Testament scholars about who this Satan character is. You know, we, we hear that name, we think it's obvious. But some scholars would say, you know, actually this, this Satan character didn't exist in the context of the story. He's just there. He's just a construct to create uh, what's going on in the story. Um, but, you know, we are in this year of biblical literacy. And we're reading this book of the Bible in the context of the whole canon of scripture. And you know, one of our goals over this next this year as we you know plow through the whole of the Bible is that we want to see the whole narrative. And when we hold up the book of Job against the whole narrative, I think it's pretty obvious who this Hasatan, this this accuser is. You might remember he showed up right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. Right then at that time he was he was said to be like a serpent. And so I think, in my mind, there's no doubt who this Satan character is uh, in, in this story. And so it says this, The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. In other words, God say, Job is he's a great guy. You know, he's, he, he's, there's no one like him in all the earth. There's no one like him who so, shows so much devotion to me. That he's, he's devoted to righteousness and holiness and justice. There's no one like Job on the earth with his character. And God, and, and, and God sees this. And God declares this. And he declares it to Satan. And, and Satan responds. And he, he says... 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and herds are spread throughout the land. In other words, everything he has, um, all this blessing, all this, all this prosperity comes, you know, and his, his willingness to, to love you and cherish you and praise you comes because you've blessed him, Lord. You, you've done that. You've put this hedge of protection around him. But if you was to remove that hedge of protection, then Job would curse you. He says it like this, he says, but do not stretch out your hand and, and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You know, Satan's like, he's blessing you, he's praising you, he's fearing you because you keep blessing him. And Satan's like, if you allow me to curse him, he will surely curse you. And in this moment, Satan, the accuser, he publicly calls God out on his own policies. You see, Satan agrees with God. Job is righteous. Job is uh, a devoted. He's, he's the best follower of God there is. But the accuser is saying that's only because, because you've made his life so great. It's only because you've given him so much. If you take that away, he'll curse you. And it's that accusation that, that the Satan makes that really kind of throws up the, a question uh, for the whole book, or a couple of questions. The first would be this, can human beings have a, disinterest, a disinterested faith in God? Or another way of putting it, can human beings believe in God without looking for rewards or fearing, fearing punishment? Can we love God for God? Can we love God just because he's God? And as, as, as uncomfortable as this book makes us, and you know, the Bible, if you've, if you've been reading the Bible this year with us in the year of biblical literature, you know there's times the Bible makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah? There are uncomfortable moments in the Bible, and this is probably one of them. But this whole thing, this whole encounter between uh, Satan and God, it, it's like some cosmic wager. Uh, and, and the question is, why does God take the bet? Why, why does God say yes? Why does God say yes to Satan? Um, you know, when Satan walks in, he says, I bet you if you lift your protection off him and let me throttle him, I bet you he will curse you. Why was God willing to take that bet? Well, I, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe possibly that God truly believed that Job already loved him. And so this is what happens in verse 12. It says, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabines um, attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one 
who has escaped to tell you. Whilst he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Whilst he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and, and sweeped down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Whilst he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And so it's in this moment that Job's life changes. And it's in this moment that Job steps into the universal experience of all humanity. The, the human experience of suffering and, and pain. And you know, each one of us understands that reality. We understand uh, to different, different degrees that, that, that that's the human experience, that part of the human experience is this thing to suffer. Many of us know what suffering is like. And many of us know what suffering is like when it doesn't seem like, the, um, it doesn't seem like any of the cause, of, uh, the cause of our suffering doesn't match the effect. You know, what did Job do wrong? What did, he, what did he do wrong? Well, we know the answer, don't we? <laughs> nothing. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing to deserve his suffering. He was righteous, the most righteous of all men. And yet he suffers. And this is the reality of our world. As, as people, we suffer, and, and we often suffer at disproportionate amounts to what we've sown. There will be some of us in this room who think, right, that's right. You know, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not righteous. But I'm not sure I deserve this. I'm not sure I deserve this much pain. And we all live in that reality. That's part of our human experience. And, and Job, in this moment, steps into this experience in many ways, he's like an archetype as a person in the scriptures who steps into a level of suffering that he cannot explain, that he cannot justify, that he cannot reason why it's happening. So what is the answer? Why does this happen? Well, sadly, as I said, this book doesn't give that answer. But what I can tell you, I think this book teaches us that overly simplistic answers to pain and suffering will not do. Giving trite answers to those who suffer, to those who are in pain, will not do. And so Job goes through a, a tremendous amount of suffering and pain, and how does he respond? Verse 20. It says, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. 
Then he fell to the ground and worshipped. How many of us, last time we felt some pain and suffering, our, our default response was to worship? He fell down and worshipped. He said this, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, they're famous words, aren't they? He gives and he takes away. And we can glibly quote them in different circumstances. But when we read it in its context, you know, I just think, man, I wish I had that faith. I wish I could be a person who that would be my default response to pain, to suffering. Now, the rest of this book from chapter 3 to chapter 38 is, is poetic, it's, it's quite beautiful in places, it's funny in places, and sad at the same time. And, and there's this kind of poetic back and forth between Job and his three friends. Now, we haven't got time um, to, to run through that. We would be here to at least, I don't know, tomorrow morning, you know, if we were to run through all of that. But I encourage you, if you haven't read the book of Job, just go back and read it and read this interaction that he has with his three friends. And, and, and so, you know, Job's, Job's friends are really, they're really good. They, they sit with him, uh, they see his pain, they, they see his suffering, they, they mourn alongside him for about a week. And, and, and then they're like, Job, dude, you need to pull yourself together. You know, you need to repent. You must have done something wrong. What's, what's wrong with you? Which isn't the best thing to say, by the way, to someone who's suffering. You know, that's, that's the takeaway tip for today. If you've got a friend who's suffering in pain, don't say to them, what's wrong with you? Okay? You might get punched in the face. Um, but his friends are like, what did you do? What did you do? What has happened? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. Nothing's happened. Now, some scholars um, talk about uh, the triangle tension uh, in the book of Job. And it's this idea uh, that in the book of Job, we have these three thoughts going on that seek to balance out what's happening, to, happening in the book, but also what's happening uh, to Job. So let me explain it. First of all, uh, the top of our tri- triangle, it represents uh, God's justice. That, that God is just and he rules the world and the universe according to his justice. So that's the first reality that's going on in this book, this declaration of God's justice. And then the, the, other, the other corner of the triangle um, is, is this, this concept called the retribution principle. Which, is, which basically is this. If you're good, you'll receive good things. Okay? And, and if you're bad, you'll receive bad things. That's essentially how this kind of primitive culture assessed the reality of the world. This is how the world works. God is just, and the world is just cause and effect. You know, so if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. And then the other corner of the triangle is Job's righteousness. 
And here's the point. As long as Job is righteous, he will continue to get blessed by a just God. And, and everything kind of works. This, this triangle kind of balances out. It kind of, everything, you know, it just, it's in harmony. And everything makes sense in this triangle until Job starts to suffer. And as soon as Job starts suffering, one of the corners of the triangle have to be given up, have to be challenged. Because that triangle makes no sense anymore when Job starts to suffer. And essentially, that is what Job chapter 3 to chapter 38 is doing. It's debating and defending the certain corners of this triangle. And so Job's friends keep arguing that Job is the problem. He isn't righteous. They're like, God is just. There's this retribution principle. Uh, People get what they deserve. And if you're suffering, Job, it's because you've broken the triangle. You're the one to blame. And they keep on at him. They keep telling him this. And and Job kind of gets a little bit ticked off with his friends. And, And he begins to argue. He's like, I'm absolutely righteous. I know I'm in the right. I know I've done nothing wrong. And the question, and he begins to question. He says, maybe the world doesn't work the way we think it does. Maybe the, that retribution principle is not a thing. Maybe the world doesn't work according to what you do is what you get. Maybe the world doesn't work in this kind of cause and effect. And this kind of messes with Job's head a little bit. See, Job knows that he hasn't done anything wrong. He's done nothing to deserve his pain. And he, and he, he kind of has this concept of, 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 of a world um, that, 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 you know, that there's this cause and effect. He lives in this concept, and he, and he knows he can't question that. And so what Job ends up doing, he says, well, maybe, maybe the problem isn't those things. Maybe the problem's God. Maybe God's unjust. And he, he, he starts saying things like, God, you're the one who's guilty. You're the one who's done something wrong. And he keeps demanding a day in court with God. He says, call me to court, God. Let me stand trial. Let me defend my case. I've done nothing wrong. I think you have. And we get to chapter 9, and he says things like this. He says, he, meaning God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks and despises the innocent. These are strong words coming from Job. And this is a very different Job from chapter 1. And he's constantly saying, God, will you show up? Give me my day in court. And then finally, in chapter 38, God shows up. And And if this book was like any other story, we'd be thinking, finally, some answers. You know, we're going we're gonna to get some answers. God showed up. He's going to give us an explanation for what's going on. And yes, God does show up. He shows up in the form of a storm or a hurricane. And, and God is, um, and, and Job is expecting God to explain himself. He's like, finally, God 
He's going to explain himself. He's going to explain to me what he's doing. And Job's friends are the same. They, they think, finally, you know, Job's going to get what he deserves. God's going to condemn him. And God does neither. He doesn't explain what's going on to Job. And he doesn't condemn him. Instead, God shows up in this storm and he, he, he asks Job a series of questions about the world and about the ocean and about creation for a whole two chapters. It's, it's, it's a little bit hard work, okay, for a whole two chapters. And God's like, where were you when I did this and that and the other? And, and tell me, can you control these things. I'm sure you know how. I'm sure you know how the universe runs. Job, I'm sure you could tell the waves to stop like I can. And there's this kind of sense of sarcasm in God's voice as he speaks to Job. And, and God asks him question after question after question. And, and Job gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And finally, he, he kind of gets the courage to speak in chapter 40 and verse 4. He says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And God says, okay, if you're not going to say anything, I'll carry on. <laughs> I'll carry on. And he starts talking about the behemoth and the leviathan. And, um, you know, we, we're not quite sure what they are. Some scholars would say they are a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Um, I'm not quite sure about that one. But um, uh, some think that um, these uh, behemoth and leviathan were, were kind of mystical creatures that were symbolic of chaos and evil in the world. Remember, a large part of this book is poetry. Creatures that are wild and untamed, and only God can control. And, and it's as almost as if God is saying, do you know about those creatures, Job? Can, can I tell you about them? Do you know how to control them like I do? Is that a realm that you operate in? Is that yours to do, Job? And, and you see, what God is essentially saying is, he says, I don't rule the world according to the basic formulas that you can control. I don't control, the, I don't control the universe with formulas that you as a human being have control over. And you see, the whole book of Job is asking a very simple question. Is God just? Is God a God of justice? And when we get to the end of the book, the answer isn't what we expect. I think the answer is it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. You see, if, if life was just cause and effect, if it was just about righteousness and retribution, if it was just about behavior and blessing, then the world would be asked to control. Because if... If all, we had to do, all we'd have to do is control the circumstances, wouldn't we? Uh, you know, make sure we push the right buttons and we'll get the right outcomes. And what God is saying to Job in the end is, is this isn't really how it works. You know, this, this triangle that we looked at, that isn't how it works. That, it's, it's bigger than that. And I think Job gets to a point where he's like, 
that's enough. I can't take anymore. And he's like, I know that you can do all things, God. You know, none of your purposes can be stopped. And you see, God never explains to Job. You know, he, 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 never, he, never, he never explains to him what happened. You know, he never, he never went up to him and said, hey, Job, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, Satan was in the office the other day, and we had this little bet. Um, you know, we had this little bet that, uh, you know, maybe if, if I let him attack you, um, you, you would curse me. You know, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't go there. That didn't happen. God doesn't tell him why he was chosen to suffer. He doesn't tell him that it was some lesson in spiritual warfare. Job never saw any of the reasoning behind it. All he saw was God. All he saw was God, and maybe that was enough. Maybe that was enough. Maybe that was the best outcome for him. You see, in all of his pain, all of his suffering, the thing that it comes down to is that God invites him to trust him again. And it's almost as if God says, you know, you're not going to understand what's happening. Um, You're not going to understand how or why or, or why things led to this. But will you trust me? Will you trust me? And Job, being the very righteous man he was, he trusts God. And in the end, God wins the bet. God wins the bet. And then God makes this interesting statement, and I'm kind of paraphrasing because we're going to run out of time. Um, but he, say, he essentially says to Job, your friends were wrong. Your friends were wrong. Those who kept telling you you were the problem, they were wrong. But guess what, Job? You wasn't wrong. You remained righteous throughout it all. And what could God mean by that? Surely God wasn't endorsing, you know, Job's theology during this time of suffering. I don't think he was. But you see, through all of Job's suffering, Job never stopped coming before God. You see, when he complained, he complained to God. Not about God. When he doubted, he doubted to God. When he lamented, when he screamed, when he yelled, he did it in God's presence. No matter what his agony was, he continued to talk to God. And so God, at the end of the book, says, Job, you're the righteous one. You wrestled with me. You, you came before me and told me what was in your heart. You, you thought I wasn't running the world and the universe the way you thought I should. And guess what, Job? I understand that. But you brought your complaints to me, your laments to me, your anger to me. See, Job's suffering didn't drive him away from God. It drove him towards God. With rugged honesty and pain and tears. And for that, Job is commended. For that, Job is seen as righteous. And so here's a closing thought. And maybe something for us to ponder. 
Maybe we will never know or understand the suffering that we face in this life. Maybe we'll never comprehend. Maybe we'll never be able to justify it. Maybe we'll never be able to uh, work out why there's been sickness or pain or destruction. Maybe we'll never get the answers that we often seek for. And maybe the challenge is, is that regardless of that, will we still trust God? Will we still trust him? Will we still trust the one who is higher than us? Will we still trust the one who operates in a realm that we do not see? Will we trust the one who, who can control the sea and the stars and the sky? Will we be, trust the one who, who, who kind of controls the good and the evil and, and the pain and the sorrow of the world? And can we trust him with a brutal, raw sense of honesty? Can we trust him whilst we're kicking and screaming and questioning why? So I think that's what God would encourage us to do. You know, we're really good at pretending in church, aren't we? We're really good at sort of saying, you know, they're there. It's been a week. Time to get over it. And actually, there is a sense of rugged honesty that God calls us to. And I think if we can learn to do that, and, and I don't mean that in a trivial way or, or anything like that, but if we can learn to do that, I think we learn the lesson that, that Job learned. You see, he learned to live with the very human experience of pain and suffering in a way that many of us probably can't fathom, cannot understand. That, that in the midst of it all, he came to a place of saying, yeah, God, I trust you. You know, though you, you strike me and bruise me, I trust you, God. Though I feel this pain inside, though I suffer, I trust you, God. 